Hello and welcome back. It's been Yaman Rose and myself, Gedalia Kutentag, with Mishpacha's home front, a wide-angle view of Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Gedalia. And today we want to start talking about the fierce battles that are going on up north, because that seems to be a second front that's opening up very quickly. Correct. And in any other context, we would this would not be considered fierce battles. This would be all-out war. In the last couple of months, Israel has killed over 100 Hezbollah operatives on the northern border. Hezbollah obviously has been leading over here with massive attacks with heavy ammunition on soldiers and civilians, multiple of whom have been killed. 80 to 100,000 civilians evacuated from their home. It's an undeclared war. And you know what? I want to just talk about where this is leading us to with a couple of historic analogies. One of them I heard this morning, the former Mossad boss, Yossi Cohen, talking on the radio giving his analysis about what's going on in Gaza and the North. And he said, this reminds us of what he called the Milchemet HaTashat, which is the war of attrition, which is actually a bit of a forgotten war. It took place between 1967 and 1970, when Israel, immediately after the massive stunning victory in the Six-Day War, many people don't remember there was this undeclared war between Egypt and Israel over the Suez Canal and massive artillery bombardments on both sides and raids and on either side. And it went on for three years. And in fact, those who lived in, in Ramatushko remember the local park, actually a big stone there, a memorial that had many, many soldiers killed in that war. It had been forgotten. And his analogy was that this is what's happened. There is a war going on. Both sides haven't declared it. There's raids, there's bombing and bombardments. And so this is where we are. So that's a historic reference point. There's another one, Benjamin, I think, which is more important over here, which is from the FDD, a right-wing pro-Israel think tank in Washington, which says that actually what has happened over here with the evacuation of 80 to 100,000 civilians is the creation of a de facto security belt inside Israel. And that is a very, very worrying thing for two decades was a security belt manned by the South Lebanese army deep inside Lebanon. Now, that is all intents and purposes happening inside Israel, which means obviously that simply can't go on. Because on the one hand, yes, you've got this Hezbollah, we don't want to open up a second front. But on the other hand, we cannot afford to have a significant part of Israel unlivable. And therefore, that I think the dynamic points to sooner rather than later, perhaps when there is some type of interim resolution to what's happened in Gaza in the next few months, things continue as they are, we're heading for one in the north. Gedalia, the problem about a war of attrition is that it leads to a greater war. Just like you pointed out, that the war of attrition was between 1967, after Israel's miraculous victory in the Six-Day War, and that war of attrition continued very close to the Yom Kippur War, which was, in a sense, a sequel to the 1967 Six-Day War. So the longer a war of attrition goes on, the more of a chance that it'll lead to a real war. Now... Of course, no one's looking for another war. No one's looking for another front. But one way that Israel could focus on the deterrence in the North is to get the U.S. more proactive. Now, if the U.S. is holding back Israel, and we saw reports about that this week, once again, there were headlines that Israel was ready to launch a preemptive attack against Hezbollah in Lebanon a couple of days after Simchas Torah. And the U.S. talked them out of it. Some say that we even had the bombers in the air. And there were multiple phone calls between Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Biden. So if the U.S. wants to hold us back, then they have to take more of a lead and take more of a role. And one way they can do that is by attacking Iran proxies in a much harder way than they are right now. The Secretary of Defense, Austin, 
has made it clear that the U.S. does not wish to escalate against proxies. And this reticence, as the think tank Jinsa put it, to use sufficient military force to deter Iran and its proxies is coming back to haunt the U.S. and it's emboldening Iran and it's emboldening the proxies. If the U.S. would make a switch and start attacking harder and start attacking Iranian proxy operatives and Houthi operatives and not just bombing the equivalent of empty buildings, then we could possibly deter Hezbollah and then Israel wouldn't have to go to war. You know, Benjamin, I'll talk about Amolik. Amolik's role is the proverbial person who jumps into the bath and cools off and shows that it can be done. And I think that is, in fact, what Hamas has done over here, because there was always the question whether having a combination of tunnels and capturing civilians in this kind of lightning raid, as Hamas did on October the 7th, whether that was going to be an effective tool. That has proven to be overwhelmingly effective in the sense that lightning raids can overwhelm a conventional army, even one as advanced as the IDF. That is now something that is absolutely on the table. If I'm sitting in Hezbollah headquarters, I'm going to say, well, how can I do the same? Hamas, like Amalek, have cooled down the bath and made it easier for anybody else to try the same thing. And that is why, as we said, this is leading. These refugees will not go back and therefore it is leading in a bad direction in that sense. But let's talk for a minute about you know, what does, let's say, Lerleno, war with Hezbollah, what can it look like? Because we know that they are infinitely strong in terms of 10 times the, the, the missile capacity of Hamas. Not just the capacity, but the accuracy. The accuracy as well. They're not just firing bits and pieces at different places and trying to overwhelm by sort of this rough gunnery and rocketry, they have accurate missiles, which means that they will be blanketing airfields and certain military sites with accurate fire, which means using far more iron domes, which potentially overwhelm them. And we saw that Hamas was able, according to the New York Times, to show that a satellite report, satellite for imagery that the New York Times reported, they actually hit Israel, one of Israel's most sensitive sites was Kanafstein, the nuclear base just outside Beit Shemesh. They've shown that they started to fire there. By the way, you know, and I think that the locals now think that well, don't kid themselves. We're always wondering what's the unique, uh, what's going on about Beit Shemesh? Why did they bother targeting this place? It's not exactly like, you know, it's not Tel Aviv or Yerushalayim. And the answer is they were likely targeting the base just over there. It's um, interesting because when you drive by the road that goes at this point from Yerushalayim through Beitar to Beit Shemesh, and if you go the long route, not the one that cuts through Ramat Beit Shemesh Aleph, but if you go all the way down to Highway 38, that leads to what I like to call the real Beit Shemesh. So I always used to see these large satellite dishes in the middle of the road. And I used to wonder, why are these situated here? So you hinted at something that we're supposed to talk about only carefully, but... Well, it's out there. By the way, I do want to add that it goes to show how good Hamas intelligence on Israel is, because if they know where to attack and where to hit, they've been doing their homework. And Hezbollah has been also, and these are things we have to be careful. And I want to add one more thing about the United States. The United States needs to stop slowboating the weapons to us. So we've been waiting for weeks now for automatic weapons, M16s that we could use in the West Bank. And it's being held up supposedly because of an increase in settler violence, which is ridiculous because Anyone who's done any reporting here and has uh, checked the statistics can tell you that uh, there is no uptick in settler violence. If anything, there's a big uptick in Palestinian violence against Jewish settlements in Judea and Samaria. The second thing we've heard is that uh, the U.S. is balking on providing Israel with uh, attack helicopters that it needs. 
we're going to need more units of attack helicopters if we're going to have to fight both on Gaza and on the Northern Front. When you talk about the slow walking stuff and the attitude of the Biden administration, do you know, if you just observe what's going on in the Biden administration's positions on this conflict, it's almost like there's a kind of split personality going there within the administration in the sense that on the one hand, I think it's very genuine from Biden downwards that we have to support us on this hour of need. But then you'll have kind of like try and placate the left and then swing a bit more to the center and then again, try to placate the left. And then you'll have John Kirby saying, well, the, I don't see that the U.S. would ever do as much as the IDF is doing to protect civilians. They're all over the plate. They're all over the show. And this is because ultimately they're a combination of they have Obama era holdovers in many, many ways. But as I've said, I've been consistent in saying for a couple of years that they are not the Obama administration number three although they might be disposed to be such a thing, but Biden's own support of Israel and his own slightly different instincts swing them, to, let's say, more towards the center. The U.S. has uh, come a long way in, in the wrong direction since uh, Colin Powell's uh, doctrine of over- overwhelming force. The U.S. is uh, right now using underwhelming force and uh, nobody's impressed by what's going on. This is the Middle East. This is a very, very tough neighborhood. And they're not going to get anywhere's telegraphing weakness and reticence. And it's also going to make it much tougher on Israel because we're the ones who are in the battle. We're the ones who've had, uh, at this count, over 12,000 rockets launched at us uh, since uh, the Simchas Torah attacks began. Uh, This is untenable. And at some point, we're going to have to do something whether the U.S. supports us or not. You know, let's move on to, to talk about the day after in Gaza, because as much as it's clear that there is so much more to be done, I don't even know if it's possible to say we're halfway there. Every time the army says we've cleared up the north and we've got operational control of the north, there it is. There's another battle in the north and more soldiers just in the north of Gaza, I mean, and more soldiers. And they're letting people back in by letting the Gazans back into the north. They're allowing Hamas to set up again. Big mistake. Well, this is because, Binyama, there is no clear game plan, at least not one that's telegraphed to the public, about what a day after looks like. The question is, we're backing the IDF totally, and yet at the same time, we're questioning what should it be? What does an endgame look like over here? So we're talking about the third stage you mentioned going into, they're going to be much more intel-driven raids into Hamas strongholds, etc. But inevitably, we're talking about things that come the day after as well. Who's going to control it? So one of the things that's come up in Yemen, like to raise is indicative of that thinking is that the IDF is proposing that we make a return to wall building. So with walls and high tech barriers obviously got bad name here in Israel and internationally now after the after failure of the billion shekel wall between Israel and Gaza. But the IDF is saying, no, we need another wall. What is this wall? This wall is going to be on the Egyptian border, on the Egyptian side of the border with Gaza in order to prevent smuggling. So now while it sounds like wall building is a joke because wall static defenses have been proven to be the fallibility. You know, it's interesting what has been reported is the IDF is saying, yes, the above ground fence and wall failed. It was breached in something like in dozens of places, but actually the below ground element, which is very expensive, the high tech anti-tunneling wall was never breached in all the years of its existence. And what they propose to do, therefore, contrary to the Weinitz reporting, they're going to build on the Egyptian side the kind of anti-smuggling, anti-tunneling wall that should have been in existence all these years, which would have prevented Gaza being flooded with these immense amounts of conventional 
munitions. That's more thinking in the terms of the day after. I mean, what do you think? You have to have a combination of strategy and tactics. So if this wall is one way to keep smuggling to a minimum, then I'm all for it. But again, there's nothing like boots on the ground. Israel is going to have to make it clear that they're going to keep forces in Gaza for an extended period of time, and that we're not in a hurry to allow the Palestinian Authority or any other authority to come in and start ruling. It's going to take a long time for any kind of reconstruction in Gaza, if it's going to happen under Arab auspices. And we have to be prepared to hold out both the military and politically. We're in it for the long haul, and we have to be prepared to be patient, and we can't allow ourselves to be pressured into accepting some kind of quick arrangement that's uh, going to work to our detriment and uh, be harmful to our security. There's one thing which I have to say, which is when you mention boots on the ground, boots on the ground, to my mind, means leverage, right? Israel needs leverage. Why does Israel need leverage? Because it needs to create pressure on the international community, on the Arab world, on various actors overseas to come up with creative new solutions because the solutions being raised at the moment are just recycling old things. You've been adamant again and again, we're not having the PA. Great. So we're not having the PA and we're not having this one. Or we're not having that one, but we need fresh solutions. And I think the fertile ground for the growth of those new solutions is Israeli leverage. The idea is you don't want us in Gaza. You use creating problems for you all over the Middle East, all over the world. The only way that you as an international community are going to get us Israelis out of Gaza and solve these things is with new solutions. And so when I talk about that, and for example, mention our own Mishpachazo last week was with Dr. Harold Rode, who was in the Pentagon back in the day, Reagan Pentagon, etc., was a senior official over there. He was saying, don't discount the ability of Turkey. Erdogan was the leader of Turkey to take in a lot of refugees, even though he said he's not going to take in a single Gazan. That could well be posturing. He said the reason as recently as two or three years ago, in the last few years, Erdogan has taken in millions of Syrian Sunni refugees of the civil war over there, and they become citizens. And he said, why? Not out of any love of the Syrian, just or humanitarianism. He said he's got a demographic crisis because he cannot, because the Kurds who are a massive constituency are grown to parity with, with the, with the Sunni Muslims. And so he wanted to gain extra Sunnis in an easy way. He did that. He took in millions of them and he said they could be with the right pressure. They could be a similar solution, at least for in the order of hundreds of thousands of thousands who want to find a much more welcome home. We've discussed this before, when you were saying, well, Egypt has to be pressured, etc. Just as you said in the past, don't just accept no as face value. It's an opening negotiating tactic. And maybe a willingness under pressure and under with the right financial incentives from the international community to take in a lot of those refugees. And I think that has to be part of the day after mix as well, Benjamin. In order to do that, the international community will have to do their own cheshbon and nefesh, if you will. And they're going to have to decide whether they want to use the so-called Palestinians as a wedge against Israel whether organizations like UNRWA wants to keep the Palestinians as a refugee nation for whatever political purposes that might entail, or do they really want to help resettle them and help them get a better life? I could see no better justice than to get a lot of the uh, people who live in Gaza now to either go to Egypt or go to Turkey, because that's really where they came from. And I wrote about this about three weeks ago in my column, the Rose Report, that most of the Arabs who live 
in uh, Judea and Samaria today, and even parts of Israel itself, as well as Gaza, are people who came in the 19th century when the Ottoman Empire, which is Turkey today, was disintegrating. And when Egypt conquered parts of, or tried to conquer parts of Palestine after the Napoleonic Wars, after Napoleon failed to conquer uh, Palestine. So if these people go back to where they originated from, it would be a better life for them. It would be a, a much better life for us because we would be rid of uh, the fifth column inside us and it would be real justice. But in order to do that, Israel, they have to really polish up their own knowledge of history. And they have to understand that these are facts. These are where the people came from. And rather than us always being on the defensive and trying to defend ourselves as being interlopers on the Arab land, we have to basically make it clear that, no, this is our country. It's been our country for 3,000 years. And we have to be able to push that and to promote that and to get the rest of the world to understand and appreciate and accept that. Could be only Mashiach that will be able to do that. But until Mashiach appears, we have to do our best to make those facts known. Listen, I think that's Moshe's site and Moshe times, as we say. I think it's fair to say that we will be living here in this country in a tenuous situation until Moshiach comes. That's what we're fated to do. It could be more or less tenuous, depending on so many things. And obviously, with Yad Tanishmaya. But anyway, the knowledge of history, I think, is a suitable ending point for this week's podcast because the history, obviously, that you're referring to is the Tanakh, the Torah. And so that is a neat segue into the parish of Shavua or the parishes in general. And so from this eminent podcast, I think it's a call to everyone, Israelis everywhere, when they're home from leave to go and read the parish of Shavua in a shul. And that's it really, Binyamin, from me and to you and to the listeners everywhere. We wish a good Shabbos. <laughs>